Profound epiphanies can happen in very ordinary circumstances. For some reason, I have experienced these moments of striking realization on a day off while doing errands in the grocery store. Honestly, in supermarkets and department stores, I have practically been brought to my knees with awe at the power of a human interaction. My most recent experience of what I will call retail epiphany came this December, just after Thanksgiving. You remember the time. While we were getting wound up for the December holidays, hanging lights, shopping, wrapping gifts, and practicing carols, our nation was reacting to the grand jury decision in Ferguson, Missouri. There was mourning from Michael Brown, anger at a justice system that had once again let down communities of color, fear for the safety of black people and police. The radio, the television, and the social media crackled with protest, anger, and debate. The phrase, Black Lives Matter, was becoming a hashtag, soon to be joined by, I can't breathe, the last words of Eric Garner in New York. Like many of you, I was transfixed by the media coverage and had been struggling with my own response to these events, hungrily reading and digesting the views of colleagues and friends, both black and white, people of faith. So all of this was on my mind on that ordinary Monday morning as I finished up my shopping for some Christmas necessities at the Acton Kmart. As I picked up my shopping bag and walked out the door, that pesky alarm rang, you know, the one that goes off when an item with a security tag on it hasn't been properly disarmed at the register. So I stopped, and I sighed, and I backed up into the store, and I said to no one in particular, was that me? I was answered by a young black man, the guy working the customer service desk that morning. He smiled and shook his head and said, yeah, I hate it when that happens. Then he casually swiped my bag over the scanner and he waved me on my way. No questions asked. He didn't even look in the bag. Our eyes met for just a moment and I think we shared a flash of recognition. For, as I turned and walked through the door, I was struck, actually breathless for a moment, with the profound realization of what had just transpired. He didn't even check my bag. He never questioned me. How might that scene have played differently had our roles been reversed? Suppose it had been a young black man leaving Kmart when that alarm went off. Suppose it had been a middle-aged white woman at the customer service counter. Would that young black man have been waved through in such a casual and friendly way? Would his bag have been checked? Would he have been questioned? As a white woman who has comfortably worn the cloak of race and class privilege for more than five decades, I didn't think twice about going back into that store. I had no thought that I might be accused of shoplifting. Would that have been true for a young black man at the Kmart in Acton? As I drove home, I continued to ponder this not-so-hypothetical scene. What would go through my mind when that alarm went off if I were a person of color? 
Might I be tempted to just keep walking rather than to face an unpleasant accusation? And what if I were pursued? What kind of confrontation might that lead to? And then a truly disturbing question. What if I had been that Kmart employee and that young man had been the customer who set off the alarm? Can I honestly say that in my heart of hearts, I would have given him the benefit of the doubt as readily as he gave it to me? As you can tell, this encounter has stayed with me, deepening my awareness of my privilege as a white person and sharpening the lens through which I view the experience of black men, women, and children in our society. Yes, I celebrate the progress we have made since Rosa Parks kept her seat on that bus. And yet I grieve what has not changed since Martin Luther King dreamed of a day when his children would be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Standing on the side of love, for me, includes the assertion that black lives matter. How, then, do I stand on the side of love each day? What brought you here this morning? Was it the chance to hear your child or grandchild sing with the choir? Was it the chance to sing with the choir yourself? Are you looking for wisdom, for companionship, for a sense of purpose, a way to change the world? Did you bring a joy to celebrate? Did you bring a grief or a heavy burden with the hope that this community could help you to lighten the load? Each of us brings unique gifts and needs to this community of faith. Each of us is essential to the whole. Generosity of spirit is magnified in community. Our financial contributions are as essential as our presence, and our funds are likewise magnified when combined. So please, give generously at this opportunity. Our offering will now be received. I've been struggling with the idea of nonviolence recently. Uh, The idea of talking about nonviolence in this service was raised in our worship staff meeting, which we do every week, and my reaction was um, strong, to say the least. (laughs) I see the word nonviolence being used to blame communities which are showing more anger than others are comfortable seeing. And I think that's where that strong reaction against talking about nonviolence came from. But then I realized after reflecting upon my reaction in that meeting that I've also watched peaceful demonstrations these last few weeks and months take a turn that is distressing to me, 
when some people use the political stage of a demonstration to inflict harm on others. And I think both of these diversions from our, I think both of these are diversions from the path of nonviolence. So over the past few weeks, I've turned to Martin Luther King and Mahatma Gandhi, two men who informed the roots of nonviolence for Unitarian Universalists. I wanted to remember what they preached, and perhaps more importantly, where their vision came from. And what I found is this. Both King and Gandhi were so angry. They weren't angry with their minds. They were angry with their bodies. They could feel in their bones that this world was operating in a way that helped some and hurt others. They themselves felt the pain of that inequality. Gandhi felt it first in the streets and trains of South Africa. King had felt the injustice all his life. They knew something wasn't right. They could feel it, and they were so angry. Both King and Gandhi could have taken their anger out on the world around them. They could have turned that anger into violence and hatred. But they had seen so much hatred in their lifetime. They had seen how hatred takes over the soul, and they weren't willing to become filled with hatred. They knew that hating others didn't help anyone. So they chose to turn their anger, take their anger, and make it into love. I think this is why, or why we admire King and Gandhi so much. They embodied the phrase, love beyond belief. So how did they arrive at this place, and how might we follow their lead? It wasn't until Gandhi left his home country of India that he felt the injustice of racism and classism in a really tangible way. While working at a law firm in South Africa, Gandhi saw how Indians and black South Africans were retreated by Europeans who had colonized South Africa. He felt this injustice and addressed it nonviolently. He tells a story of being on a train and someone asked him to get up, like someone asked Rosa Parks later to get up, and he held onto the railing of the train while someone tried to pull him out of his seat. So he took what he learned in South Africa and he brought it back to India and he applied it to his own situation there. And the rest of the world learned from him. Martin Luther King had felt the injustice of racism and classism all his life. He had seen black people be treated differently than white people in his community. When he began speaking out against the injustice he saw, his house was attacked, his family was threatened, his life was in danger. But King had read Gandhi's words, and he had the courage it took to withstand these acts of hatred and respond with love. The extent of King's love for all people, I think, is most evident in his 1967 Christmas Day sermon to his congregation in Alabama. This was his last Christmas Day sermon, and I have to wonder if he knew at the time that it might be his last. Tensions were increasing in America, and King's people, his congregation, were seeking a message of hope and resilience in the face of hatred. And this is what King told them. I've seen too much hate to want to hate myself. I've seen hate on the faces of too many sheriffs, too many white citizens' counselors, and too many Klansmen of the South to want to hate myself. And every time I see it, I say to myself, hate is too great a burden to bear. Somehow we must be able to stand up before our most bitter opponents and say, 
We shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul soul force. Do to us what you will, and we will still love you. Do to us what you will, and we will still love you. It's as if King is empowering his people to say to those who hate, love is our foundation. There is nothing you can do to take away our love for you. Imagine a love that strong. A love so strong that nothing could move it towards hate and violence. That love is the definition of peace. That love is the definition of nonviolence. And as Gandhi reminds us, this love is not easy to attain. We read in the reading this morning, nonviolence is not a garment to put on and off at will. It is a seat in the heart, and it must be an inseparable part of our being. A seat in the heart. Imagine how your life would change if you lived it with peace and compassion in your heart. This idea of living with peace in your heart, of loving those who hate you, this is what it means to stand on the side of love, wherever love is. Because sometimes love, love is all around us in seemingly opposing places. And what we are asked to do as Unitarian Universalists, then, is to live into the tension between the two places where love exists. Love is with the Muslim community in Europe right now, and love is with the Jewish and Christian communities, too. Love is with those who put their lives on the line by stepping out their front doors into violence-ridden neighborhoods, and love is with those law enforcement officials who put their lives on the line by stepping into violence-ridden neighborhoods. Love is what we do, what those who shout Black Lives Matter, and also with the police who are doing the best they can to keep all communities safe. Love might be a place where we are comfortable, and love might be in a place where we are so, so uncomfortable. But our job as Unitarian Universalists is to identify love and be with it wherever it is. It's a big task, but it can start small. It can start by smiling at the woman asking for spare change or listening to a friend with whom you disagree. Are you up for it? I hope you'll try with me. On this day, I'm here to share with you some of my thoughts about what Dr. King's quote, injustice anywhere is a threat. It is a threat to injustice everywhere. This quote reminds me a lot about why I embrace the Unitarian Universalist faith. The first principle of our Unitarian Universalist faith calls us to affirm and promote the inherent worth and dignity of every person. That is not easy. It means we have to be willing to see the world through someone else's eyes in order to understand them. It means we have to stretch and see something besides ourselves in our reality. This is never easy, but this morning, I am asking you to pretend that instead of being 70% of the population, which is the majority, 
that you are now 13% of the population. Being 13% of that group, you live your life under a microscope because a lot of people still today feel that you are inferior. Every single day of your life, you are being judged because of the color of your skin. These stories that you have been hearing in the news or seeing on television, my friends, have been happening for years. But thanks to the progress of technology, you are able to see and hear about these injustices on television at a quicker rate. As a black man, I would like you to view these daily occurrences through my eyes and ask yourself, do you ever have to worry about these situations? Yes, as a father, I have two boys, and I do worry about how they will be perceived. Yes, I do worry that I'm in danger during a traffic stop. Yes, I'm usually being followed by security in many department stores. Yes, I am afraid that if I walk down the wrong street, I could be targeted by law enforcement or vigilantes. Yes, I do worry about going out at night. No, I'm not being too sensitive. I'm telling you this because these occurrences have happened to me. It didn't matter that I'm a well-educated black man. But the question that I ask you today is, how can we as Unitarian be agent of change so that people of color can truly feel that they are real Americans? In 1967, Martin Luther King Jr. wrote a book entitled, Where Do We Go From Here? That, my friend, is the question that is before us still. We as a Unitarian Universalist people of faith are once again being called to become part of that answer. As King wrote in his book, we are confronted with the fierce urgency of now. and this unfolding conundrum of life and history, there is such a thing as being too late. Procrastination is still the thief of time. Life often leaves us standing bare, naked, and dejected with a, with a lost opportunity. The grand jury rulings in Ferguson and Staten Islands have given us a new opportunity a new moment in time. As a black grandmother in New York said last month that she was protesting in New York City, she said, you know, I think this is a seminal moment for this generation. I haven't seen this much activism for a worthy cause in a long time. I want you to take a minute and think about all the atrocities that has happened in our country and in our world for the past 10 years, and I want you to ask yourself, what have I done to help? What have I done to stand up for these injustices? I know that there are those among us who would say, really, not here in church should we have to look at these unhappy truths. But therein lies the rub. For it was when our spirits let go of the dream that we lost our way. When as a country we began to dance with prosperity at the expense of humanity that we began to lose. When as a country we place more of a premium on personal safety than communal justice that we lose, that we lose more. When as a country we let the spirituality become something isolated and given rather than 
relational and earn that we let go of that spirit entirely. Dr. King understood that we needed a dream, that to speak to our spirits, our soul, that dream must be central to our humanity. It must call upon a deepest sense of justice and good. The dream needed to get past our head and heart and speak to our spirit. He also knew that the dream was not his own. He knew that it had to be that which was authored and owned by our deepest, best selves, the sort of yearnings that can only be authored by the spirit. It is very critical that we pay attention to that moment. We need to turn toward that stirring and once and for all connect the feeling of awe, excitement, hope, or fervor. Whatever you name it, recognize it as our spirit crying out, yes, and commit to that action. Lifelong, daily, strong action. So, where do we go from here? Will we listen to voices that need to be heard? Will we engage in difficult conversations? Will we seek together to do more than talk? Will we stretch ourselves so that we become catalysts of change? Will we be compelled to march with others who have already taken it to the streets? Will we use our bodies, our voices, financial means, and create statements that cannot be ignored or forgotten too soon? Such change, my friends, will not come easily. Bringing it about will mean speaking hard truths about racism, Recognizing the disparity that remains between the races within the criminal justice system, it will mean acknowledging your privilege, even when many of you do not feel privileged. It will mean working through our collective shame so that we can talk openly about the history and culture of racial injustice. It will mean that good people have to face aspects of themselves and their communities, which they don't want to admit. Yes, all of our lives matter, but in this country, in this situation, black lives do matter. If we as a nation ever want to live this truth, then we have work to do. And my Bible, when I read it, it doesn't say get justice. It says do justice. The good news is that we have begun the process of doing justice. After centuries of killing which we have passed without consequence in the public sphere, large numbers are at last taking notice and speaking up. Some people won't want to hear about it because many of us like to think we've already moved beyond this kind of thing. But we will not be silent any longer. May we have the courage and perseverance every single day to keep talking, keep teaching our young generation, keep advocating, keep organizing every single day. Michael Brown's father asked that his son's death not be in vain, that it lead to incredible positive change. These positive changes can only happen when we truly work together.
Let it be so. Amen.